disruption zone. Opportunity lives where the status quo dies. Talking to the greatest innovators, disruptors, and off-the-wall inventors, we can scrounge up. You laugh, you'll learn, you'll be inspired. Now, here are your hosts, Leland Conway and Cameron Mills. All right, I've been harping on this uh, rent uh, or eviction moratorium that was put in place by the CDC for some time. This, this to me, is, is a very important issue, and it may sound boring, but in reality, if somebody came to you and said, I want you to do some work for me, and I'm not going to pay you, and the government says you have to do the work, uh, and the government says I don't have to pay you, how would you feel about that? All right? That is exactly what's happened to millions of land uh, property owners across the country who are kind enough to rent out their spaces to people. And then the government came along and said people don't have to pay rent because of the pandemic because it's something the government did in the first place. It's maddening. So I wanted to bring on um, Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. He and Abigail Hall, one of their fellows at the Pegasus Institute, wrote a really great article in the Washington Examiner um, about how this is all a house of cards. I will link to it in the comments on the post so you can check it out and read it. It's worth your time. But we're going to have a conversation with Josh about this very important issue uh, right now. First, though, I want to thank Louisville Cabinets and Countertops for their sponsorship of the program. I don't just say this about them because they sponsor the program. I've been a customer not once but twice. I went back again because it was so good the first time. They did our kitchen for us. It made it absolutely beautiful. Then they did our master bath. Guys, these are the folks you want to work with. Their work ethic is unparalleled. Their craftsmanship is amazing. And their customer service is out of this world. They do a thing called SAS, service after the sale, which is a concept that is so important to me. When I buy something, I want to know that if there's an issue with it or a question that I have, that the people who sold it to me are going to be with me through the long haul. That is how Louisville Cabinets and Countertops works with your kitchen. So I want you to give them a call. Um, actually, check out their website. It's LouisvilleCabinetsandCountertops.com or call them at 502-930-3304. Talk to George, McKell or, uh, Michelle, or Kelly, one of the designers on staff. Um, and you can also, if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a uh, contractor, they've got cabinets in stock and ready to go. And they're affordable and very high quality and beautiful. So check all that out as well. It's Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Turnkey Kitchen Remodel to a do-it-yourselfer. They can help you with all of that. All right, now our conversation with Josh Crawford from the Pegasus Institute. My good friend Josh Crawford is back with us from the Pegasus Institute. Uh, find out more about them by going to PegasusKY.org. And um, Josh, you and Abigail Hall, who is one of your senior fellows at the Institute, wrote a piece that um, went out nationally on the Washington Times, or excuse me, the Washington Examiner. And it was about the eviction moratorium. This is a, pa a topic I'm super passionate about because I feel like in a way what's happened here, and this this began under the Trump administration, um, mm -hmm. but I've got a whole line of theories that I, I want to get into with you, but this is a bit of a Rubicon that we've crossed in terms of socialism, communism, whatever you're going to call it, in terms of the government having so much power that it literally can do anything it wants. Um, and, and I'll kind of explain that, but you guys had a really great piece about how it's a house of cards in the Washington Examiner, and I wanted to bring you on so we could kind of talk about this because I think this is a very serious deal that not a lot of people are paying attention to and not enough people care enough about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so thank you for having me, Leland. And the thing about this policy in particular is there's that very famous scene in the movie Shrek where Shrek and Donkey are having the conversation and Shrek says that ogres are like onions. They have layers. <laughs> um, 
this policy is a bit like an onion in that there are so many layers of bad to it, right? right. The, the first and the most obvious to me um, as somebody who went to law school as an attorney is that from my vantage point, from an originalist vantage point, this is completely unconstitutional from the jump. And it, it was unconstitutional when President Trump did it. It was unconstitutional when President Biden did it. And that's because the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution covers interstate commerce. Um, it does not cover intrastate commerce. And rental agreements are almost exclusively intrastate commerce, right? Your landlord and your tenant tend to live in the same state. Now, that's not the prevailing opinion of the Commerce Clause on the United States Supreme Court right now. It hasn't been for a long time. So if you set that aside, the operative question becomes, okay, if they can do this, by what authority can the CDC do this? And the short answer to that question and the answer that the United States Supreme Court said was that they can't. Now, that case made its way up to the Supreme Court and uh, in a 5-4 decision – the court chose not to invalidate the moratorium because it was set to expire in two weeks. And, and Brett Kavanaugh joined the chief justice and the three liberal justices to say, you've got your two weeks. We're not going to cut it off right now. Figure out what you're going to do in those two week period, because in two weeks it expires and it's over because it's completely unlawful. There is no grounds under which you can do this. Well, of course, the Biden administration took those two weeks um, the House of Representatives made a push to extend it, which under the framework put together by the Supreme Court, Congress could have done. Congress would have had the authority to do it, but they didn't have the votes because it's not particularly good policy. And so it expired. And then, of course, the Biden administration has come out and extended it. They've narrowed it some, but but not significantly. And so now we have an, or an order that's completely unlawful. The United States Supreme Court has said that, that the CDC does not have the authority to do it, and yet the CDC is doing it anyway. And so I would anticipate from, from just the legal perspective, um, there being another lawsuit in the near term and it making its way back up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, hopefully this time, not only saying that you can't do it like they did last time, but actually invalidating the policy. You were right when you brought up the onion layers because like just starting with the constitutionality of it, there's several layers of unconstitutionality. You mentioned the interstate, interstate commerce. There's also, um, you know, amendments that protect private property that protect coercing people into, um, agreements they don't agree to. There's, uh, there's even, and this is a bit of a stretch, but I think it, could potentially qualify there's there it's not the military but you're in essence you're quartering people in people's property um there there's so many levels of unconstitutionality of this that i i mean i don't e I, I don't even know that how could how could even the congress vote on this because you're you have a rental agreement like i i don't know the, the only i guess the only thing the congress could do that i could see as being potentially passing constitutional muster would be if they extended the federal housing authority and said we're going to send checks to the landlords for these people who can't pay their rent. But at right. least in that situation, as much as I would disagree with that handout, at least in that situation, you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, literally. Well, you are because you're robbing the whole country. But you know what I mean? You're, right. you're, you're spreading the hurt around in that situation to everybody as opposed to literally harming the property owner because the property owner is still responsible for maintenance they're still responsible yep. for keeping up the safety 
and they can't kick these people out who are apparently in some cases buying boats with their extra unemployment money and not paying their rent. So it, it I, I mean, uh, I guess sort of the Congress doing something like that. I don't even know that they could do this because does Congress have the right to basically write a new law that says we can intervene on property rights at any time that we want to? Yeah, I would argue that the answer to that question is no. Um, that, that again, though, is not the prevailing position on the Supreme Court right now or, or certainly hasn't been historically. Um, and so we don't talk about this so much in the piece, but I could certainly in my had envisioned a policy that made sense that addressed the problems because like look whenever this was first put in place it was unconstitutional then it was bad policy then but you you understand it right because yeah. if the government is telling you you can't work right. then the government has an, a duty then to try to mitigate the externalities from you not working right and so if the if the government devised a program by which rental assistance was going out to identified people who couldn't work because of the pandemic and those kinds of things. And those checks were going on to landlords or they went directly to landlords, something like that. Again, I can wrap my head around like very specific set of problems related to coronavirus, coronavirus lockdowns, the inability to work as a part of those lockdowns and the affirmative duty of government to then subsidize that because the government is telling you, you can't work. Yeah, right. Yeah. I can wrap my head around all that, but of course that's not, not what's happened here. Um, and, and even, even more so there were, there, there was a significant chunk of money that, um, Congress has allocated for rental assistance, but less than 10% of that money has actually made its way out the door. Right. And so, um, the, uh, the association, the, the, the rental property association in a, in a legal filing has said that they anticipate a multi, multi-billion dollar loss as a result of this. But that assumes within it that every penny of the $46 billion that Congress allocated makes its way to those landlords. And Which we're not won't. even close to that happening. Right? Yeah, it won't. It will never make it to them. Um, it'll disappear in the abyss uh, that the government has become. Um, there's, I think, an even more insidious hand at play here. And I've kind of been on this kick lately, and I think it's a very important concept that millions and millions and millions of Americans just have no clue about. And that is that we are no longer governed by those that we elect. We are governed by bureaucrats who were put in place because those that we elect don't want to make decisions. In the process, lifelong leftists have populated our bureaucracies. And regardless of who is president, we are having our lives and our businesses run by lifelong leftists who have a left-wing, if not even worse, agenda, and they're, they're, they're playing it out. And a perfect example of that is that this was not a policy that necessarily Trump was in favor of. I don't even know if he was aware that it happened. It was a bureaucratic agency that has absolutely nothing to do with the property agreement between a, rental, uh, a renter and a renter, or a renter and a, and a property owner, and they just arbitrarily decided that because there were all and, and by the way, the CDC wasn't necessarily the ones in charge of shutting down businesses. So where right. did they pull the authority to literally intervene in this contract? And so you have a you have a, a literal rogue bureaucracy that has been caught lying, that has been caught obfuscating, that has been caught putting out misinformation. And now it is out there intervening in the right 
to own property and to to gain proceeds from that property. If we don't recognize that this is happening and that this is happening on a grand scale across our education system, across our our energy system, um, across our utility system, that we have literally lost. I mean, I I think this is a Rubicon. This is when you have an agency that's tasked with dealing with disease who suddenly just up and says, oh, by the way, nobody has to pay any rent. You don't live in a democracy anymore. Like, I think it's that serious, Josh. Yeah, so there there are a couple of things I'd really like to un- unpack there because there's a, a, a lot there. The, I brought the you a big suitcase, is, didn't I? I brought you a big old suitcase, <laughs> didn't I? You, you did, but but I'm glad you did. The, the first thing that you've identified there is the problem of the administrative state which has been growing in this country for a long time. And I think Americans are sort of finally waking up to the power that uh, executive and independent agencies have versus the power that Congress has. And the first part of that problem was that Congress has, as you've indicated, delegated a whole bunch of authority to those agencies. That presents problems in itself, but at least when Congress delegates that authority, you could theoretically say, hey, we don't like that Congress delegated that authority. Let's undelegate it or let's have Congress take that authority back. So that's of this sort of separate onion. That's the first layer of that. onion. The second layer, though, is that the administrative state has begun to go beyond the scope uh, of powers with which Congress has delegated to it. Right. So you've got your first layer. Congress has delegated too much. You now have these agencies that are self-sustaining. And the way they justify their existence is by doing things. And so they're going beyond that delegated authority. Uh, That is certainly what happened here as it relates to the CDC. They did not have the authority to do this. The president did not have the authority to do this. And so they've they've gone beyond the scope of their delegated authority. The second problem, in addition to the administrative state, to be quite frank, is the problem of populism in this country. Left wing populism in this country is is communism. Right. Like that. That is. That's what we know. We know it to be. We understand it like this country for all of the talk of democratic socialism has a a basic understanding of what communism is. I think you've seen that in the response in this country to what's gone on in Cuba. Um, When you wake Americans up to communism, they remember how much they don't like it. Um, Maybe not so much the young, but everybody else. But there but there is a vein of right wing populism in this country that is just insidious and is and is just as important for us to pay attention to because President Trump very much knew about this um, and not so much knew about it, but he is the one who directed the CDC to do it in the first place. Okay, I wasn't wasn't aware of that. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. So it's an executive order from the president to the CDC to do this. The president didn't have that authority. The CDC didn't have the authority to do it. But President Trump does this because it's a very sort of populist policy, right? right? There are a lot of right of center voters who are also renters and who don't want to be thrown out of their property. And so the sort of like very easy stage one thinking response to that from a populist is to say, okay, you don't have to pay it anymore. Right. And so it's important for your listeners to understand that like there is this pull and tug on both sides of the aisle right now that is – adversarial towards free markets that is adversarial towards private property and there are other elements of that there's this whole conversation about national conservatism and things like that that we should maybe do a separate episode on that i actually think is super valuable for the right but one of their major flaws is that they are incredibly skeptical of the free market 
And so uh, if those folks become the dominant ideology on the right, then you can expect more of these kinds of things to come from our side as mm. come from these yeah. communists on the left. And by the way, I just weigh in here because this is not going to be popular with my diehard Trump supporter friends, but people that have known me for a long time know I call it like I see it. I, I warned about this when Trump was elected. Now, I voted for Trump twice uh, because that was the choice between that and really full on socialism, in my opinion. But the, the, the idea of populism from the right or the left grow, grosses me out right mm -hmm. now. Being proud of my country, being a patriot is right. totally different. That's that's a different thing. I am a patriot. I love my country. And, I, and I've said for a long time, I'm not a Republican, by the way, I'm an independent. I, the Republican Party kind of left me a long time ago because of these things that I saw happening. It was the constant war. Um, it was the constant hypocrisy on free markets, right? Like we want to lower taxes, but we still want to spend into oblivion. It was driving me nuts. And I think Trump was sort of, in a way, he he brought, I mean, for all his flaws and all his things that he did right, and he did a lot of things right in office, but he also ushered in that era of new conservative populism. And it concerns me because um, it is this idea that we're, we're okay with bureaucracies running our lives. Uh, we just want our people in those bureaucracies, right? Um, right. I was actually giving a talk at a conference and I had a gentleman, uh, you know, I, I'm recalling this from memory, but he was challenging my sort of libertarian ideas uh, towards how to solve some of the problems that we have in America right now. And he, he basically insinuated that we need to we need a dose of totalitarianism to put the right people in to get our freedom back. And right. I was like, OK, and, and this was somebody on the right. And I'm like, wait a minute, when we start talking like that, you know, we've kind of lost our soul. Right. And, I, and, and so I think it, it this does concern me greatly because um, you're right. It is something that is not I, I posted on Facebook the other day. I was like when they passed the trillion dollar plus stimulus bill or whatever it is. I was like, but look, both parties failed you here. You know, right. th this is this is a sin of both political parties. It is driven by leftism and statism, but it's a sin of both political parties. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the consequences, because I think they're the problem with this. And this is one of the this would be another criticism I have of Trump is that um, he did a lot of things good, but he also did a lot of things reflexively. And I think you accurately described this as being a first-level thinking um, response to this because I, I still don't understand who was it that said, hey, let's let's stop people from out of paying rent, but let's not make the renter or the, uh, uh, the property owner whole, right? Like I still right. don't understand how that fell through the cracks. Clearly could only have come from bureaucracy. But right. – the, the further layer on this onion is that it's going to create a problem that's tenfold worse than what they were trying to solve, right? Government created this problem by shutting down businesses. And then by shutting down having to pay rent, this money is still due. These people cannot afford to pay it. They got a year of back rent in some cases. Um, yep. They And we can argue over whether they have an excuse for that because we had the stuffed up unemployment benefits and nobody would go back to work and we have plenty of jobs open and if they're not doing that it's kind of on them but I'll tell you a quick anecdote of a young family a young couple that we know that had been living in a very crime-ridden part of town they wanted out of that situation people were getting shot on their street every day and so they actually put all their coins into renting a nicer apartment in a nicer part of town and they were safe 
they paid their rent all through this process. But as soon as the moratorium was initially lifted before it was put back in place, the the tenant or the uh, owners of that property raised rent by $400 a month. They can no longer afford to be in that safe neighborhood, this young couple. They right. now have to <clears throat> look for an apartment in a part of town that's going to be less safe. And yep. that is a direct result. And, and I told people this. I said, look, you're going to get higher rent, higher housing. D Democrats and leftists are always talking about we want affordable housing. We want affordable housing. This policy is going to drive pricing of housing up more than practically anything in the last besides government regulations in the last 20 years because those landowners are going to have to get that money back and the way they're going to get it is from future renters right yeah so the the, the first and most obvious consequence of this right is the money that, that the landlords are going to be out and that's an important thing for for people to think about because most i shouldn't say most uh, about 50 percent of um rental properties are what are referred to as mom and pop rentals. So mm -hmm. they're owned by individuals. They're not owned by right. uh, corporations. They're not owned by conglomerates. Not for long. It's, That's another consequence of this. They'll be selling those right. to the corporations. Right. So it's it's folks who have a spare bedroom that their kids used to live in, and now they've gone, you know, graduated from college and things like that. So they're out of the home. So it's that kind of stuff. It's you know, we have downsized to a smaller property, but we still own this home and it doesn't have a mortgage on it anymore. And so we use it as supplemental income kind of stuff. Those kinds of people simply cannot afford to have had the year that um, that they just had. Right. And the other thing is, is, you know, like you talked about this, the rent hasn't gone away. It's still owed once this eviction moratorium is over. And so let's say that your your rent is $800, which is not a particularly expensive rent, right? It would be on the lower end in most major metropolitan areas of of even studio apartment rent. Um, and let's say you haven't paid it for 12 months. Well, you have $9,600 that's due now. Right. And the number of people who have the ability to write a $9,600 check, even if they have gone back to work, is very small. And so it's not as if that there's just going to be a bunch of checks written and things are going to move forward. So you're going to have a tremendous number of evictions. Those people are going to to be out of luck. And there's almost certainly going to be a contraction in the rental market altogether because yeah. people are going to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. If if government can just swoop in and do this, why why would I do this? Or the other thing that's going to happen is what you talked about that you're going to see increases in rent because renters are, or excuse me, because landlords are trying to recoup that money or quite frankly, because they want to elevate their tenants financial status by saying like, we're only going to rent to people who, if something like this happened again, they wouldn't qualify for the assistance of a moratorium, right? Like, because right. there are, there are financial, um, bookends to uh, to this moratorium so if you make over a certain amount it doesn't qualify and so renters are going to say okay we'll increase rent by five hundred dollars because if you can afford five hundred dollars more then you can probably afford to not be in that category should something like this happen again yeah and so if you want to talk about affordable housing not necessarily the federal designation for affordable housing just housing that is affordable this is almost certainly going to have a negative impact on it yeah well i was just i just googled this just to be just to check on it um, so I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado now, and, um, the average rent here is up 14% over last year. Yep. So when you have meat up 40%, you have gas 
up 100%. You have rent up 14%, right? And I'm sure that's on par with a lot of other places around the country. Yep. Uh, imagine what that's doing to the people that Joe Biden, regular Joe, says that he is trying. I know I'm changing the subject here a little bit, but just throwing that out there. Imagine what that's doing, squeezing the middle class. And I, and I guess the reason I bring it up is because the left is always talking about helping the little guy. When in reality, it seems what they're doing is making the little guy even more dependent on government. And I think that's what lies at the heart of what we're kind of discussing here, right? I mean, it's policies and ideas that don't solve problems. And many times they create problems that then these politicians and these bureaucrats especially can look busy about solving, which are only really exacerbating those problems. Um, yeah. Well, so. think about the things that you just identified, right? So food, shelter, and transportation costs are all going up. Right. I mean, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're talking about the base of the pyramid. Yeah, base right? of the pyramid, it's, yeah. It's, it's not as if you're talking about the cost of luxury goods going up or right. the cost of vacations going up or the cost of condos in Miami or homes on Nantucket going up, right? right, right. You're talking about the stuff that, that hits those, those very folks that you're talking about. And so it, it is... It is proof that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Because I think the overwhelming majority of people who supported policies like this did so because they want to help people. Right. This, this is something that I think people might call me ignorant for, but I, I truly believe it. I think that most people in government are trying to do the right thing. Uh, they're doing it through the prism of their ideology. They're doing it through the life experience that they bring but that ultimately most people are trying to be good actors, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying right. to do the right thing. Um, and this is a, an incredible example of there was a lot of folks who were trying to do the right thing, trying to help people, but the consequences of it are going to be, are going to be very negative. Yeah. Um, as a organization that talks about policy, I mean, obviously don't do this is <laughs> the number one thing, right? The longer they, leave this moratorium on rent in place, the worse this problem gets. It's like blowing a balloon up. At some point, it, has, it is going to pop. Uh, mm -hmm. But in the, the, the bigger you get it, the bigger that pop is going to be. So um, is, is there anything that you would make as a suggestion that you guys are studying? I know you did this article. Um, is there anything that you guys are like trying to put in front of legislators, in front of people that might be willing to listen to you? Yeah. So my dad used to tell us this thing all the time when we were kids, which is that the fastest way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. And we had this penchant for continuing to dig whenever that was on the table. Um, but what legislators need to first and foremost do here is stop digging, right? They right. need to, they need to stop this as a matter of policy. Um, there may be some very targeted ways to, uh, to perhaps delay evictions, um, while rental assistance is on the way, right? right so that right. You, you do a process by which you can demonstrate as a tenant that you are not allowed to work, that your income falls below a certain uh, percentage, and then um, that you haven't paid rent for X number of months. You send that to the IRS, whomever, whomever the right entity in government is, and you identify who your landlord is, and then a check for whatever that cost is goes directly to the landlord, right? right. That would be the easiest and most straightforward way to rectify this, um, making sure that that assistance that has been already allocated actually makes its way out the door and actually makes its way to 
the 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 people who need it and the the landlords who are out rent right because mm-hmm. the the tragedy of a lot of assistance like this and I'm putting that in air quotes for your listeners who uh, who obviously can't see me do it is that so much of it ends up going not just to to bureaucratic overhead but to to things that really are not um, are not necessarily in need and and to be frank. You know, large landlords are hurt by this just like the mom and pop landlords are. But the practical reality is that the large landlords are going to have are going to be in a better position to recoup these losses by government assistance than the mom and pop landlords are. Oh, yeah, right? sure. That's why those if mom you, and pops are going to sell to the big guys. Right. And so um, making sure that, that those folks uh, get the assistance that they need is is sort of the where we're at. Right. Like there's. The trouble here is that you you meet the world as it is, right? And so in a perfect world, you go back in time, you don't do it, you you do things differently, and you don't have any of these problems. But but right now, we're at a point where stopping digging is priority number one, Mm -hmm. and then getting assistance that's already allocated to the people who have really gotten the short end of the stick as a result of this are are really the only ways to try to fix this, because otherwise, you are going to have mass evictions. And then you are going to have massive losses and a constriction of the rental uh, market. Yeah, for sure. Um, just one other. Let's chase a rabbit trail for a second because I think we've kind of covered this topic pretty well. And um, I'm glad that people like you exist that are thinking us through, writing things that make it to national coverage because it's important that we try to wake people up to what's happening. But this does kind of dovetail with our conversation about, you know bureaucrats running our lives and then also the question of who actually writes bills right so i literally just came across the story that the infrastructure bill which is almost 3000 pages long has a new mandate in it that cars have to have basically as yet not not invented drunk driving detection systems in it so all new cars under the administration's bill and i'm not sure what year they have this taking place it usually is several years down the road when they do this will now have to have a drunk driving detection technology installed in the new car. So this is, this is a kind of an example of like, okay, good intentions. I don't think anybody wants to see drunk driving happen, but you know, there's privacy concerns about this. There's technology concerns about this. There's expense concerns about this. There's the fact that do you, you know, driving with alcohol doesn't necessarily uh, register the same on this kind of technology as driving with marijuana, and a lot of states are legalizing marijuana, so it doesn't cover everything. This is just maybe a good intention thing that has bad written all over it, and yet it's buried in a bill for infrastructure. And this is telling private businesses what they have to do in terms of providing this technology in cars. That doesn't have anything to do with infrastructure. And when we've come to a place where you have to read through 3,000 pages of lib- legalese bureaucratic bullcrap in order to find out what new heinous things these bureaucrats have decided to do to make your life more difficult, less private, and more expensive. I mean, that's where we are right now. Yeah, I uh, I have not read the infrastructure bill for two reasons. One, I'm, I'm not an expert on infrastructure, and two, I know that it would just make me sad. <laughs> um, it make you mad. Now, so, so, so I, I, uh, I don't I don't know the specifics of what you're talking about. Uh, I'm curious if it's like ignition interlock devices, um, which most states already have requirements for for individuals who are convicted of right. 
DUIs, especially subsequent DUIs. Yep. But the interesting thing about those requirements is that expense is often on the individual. And it should um, be. So if correct, right. So you've you've everybody starts with a blank slate, right? You have demonstrated to us oftentimes repeatedly that you can't be trusted to get behind the wheel of a vehicle right. and not be intoxicated. Right. And so in those instances, there's a, a different impulse for government there to say, um, you've demonstrated that you can't be trusted. And so you have given up some of your liberties as a result of these convictions. Um, and so you will have to have this ignition interlock device and that you will foot the bill for it. It's, right. It is entirely different when government says, um, private company, you will foot this bill for all Americans and that all Americans have somehow forfeited this right. And, and of course, yeah, the, the practical implications of that is an inter, an ignition interlock device is great for alcohol, but it's not going to do anything for marijuana or methamphetamine or heroin or anything. Well, like it that, also right? moves us farther down that line of you're guilty until we prove you innocent. Like I, right. I, I've always been very pro strong punishment for drunk drivers. You know, yeah. and and I, I have no problem with them footing the bill to have to have that technology put in after they've been convicted of it. But we're supposed to be a country that, by and large, we go about our business until we've done something wrong. Right. And this yep. is this further upends that idea. Um, so to me, it's that's probably the most important part of this, you know, is that this upends that relationship that we have with government. We're becoming like England, where the government is our overlord and they allow us a few freedoms to snack on but in reality we're not free yeah i mean you and i have had many conversations both on and off the podcast at this point that i think indicates to you that i'm a i'm a pretty pro public safety person right like i i care a lot about individuals freedom from victimization from things like violent crime and their ability to move about the world freely without that fear and the reality that comes with living in some of these neighborhoods where folks hear gunshots multiple times a week and stuff like that. Right. But that's a very different calculation. And that's a very different question from a governance standpoint mm -hmm. than should all people be forced to do X or should right. all people be forced right. to do Y. Right. Um, the protection of public safety is, is the most important affirmative duty of government, right? right? Like government in a free society, government's first and foremost responsibility is to protect the rights of, of the individual, but its most important affirmative duty is to secure the domestic tranquility, right? The protection of public safety. Right. Um, but within that, there are questions of, does this come up against other rights? And so uh, it's why we say things like, Sure, if there were a camera in every home, uh, there'd probably be far fewer domestic violence-related homicides. Yeah. But there are fundamental rights that, that a policy like that would come up against. And in a country like ours that was founded the way that ours was, we value those rights over the potential benefit there. And so when you're talking about putting something like an ignition interlock device in every car in the country – you are saying that you are, to your point, guilty until proven innocent. And so if you want to participate in the driving on our roads, uh, you have to demonstrate to us every single time you get in your motor vehicle yeah. that you are who you purport to be uh, with no previous indication that you have a penchant for drinking and driving. Yeah. Yeah, that's maddening. I I don't know. I know it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but I thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> so, 
I had to, I had to give you something to be surprised about. Um, so listen, man, it's good talking to you guys. I want people to go and uh, see your uh, website. It's PegasusKentucky.org. I think I wrongly said Pegasus KY earlier, um, but it's PegasusKentucky.org. You guys have a ton of work that you're doing. Look, here's the thing. I, I think in today's world, I'm just going to say this. This is a little plug for you guys, Josh. Um, in today's world, if you're watching only conservative news outlets, you're doing a disservice to yourself. If you're watching only mm. liberal news outlets, you're doing a disservice to yourself. What you need is data. Data, right. data, data, said Sherlock Holmes. So you guys obviously, with a penchant towards liberty, um, are about providing data. And so I just I'm very thankful that you exist. And I'm very thankful that people can use you as a resource. And I encourage people to do it because you formulate opinions based on data, not because of some talking head on your favorite news network or some talking radio guy like me or some talking podcast guy like me. You formulate opinions based on data and you guys are there to provide data. So I just I want people to understand how important you guys guys are as an institution. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Leland. And I tell people this all the time. The research leads. Right. And so that's how we go about doing advocacy work. That's how we go about doing policy change is that the research leads yeah. and um, folks may review some of our work and say, I don't agree with that conclusion or I don't think that the way that they propose that you fix that is how you fix that. But what you won't be able to do is disagree with the underlying problems, the underlying data and things like that, because we it, it's all right there. Yeah. Right. And it's it's pulled from public sources and um like you may say, wow, those guys have really identified a problem. I just don't agree with the way they're going about fixing it. Right. But uh, I assure you that the, if we have identified the problem, it is it is demonstrated. Well, it's demonstrable in data. Isn't that one of the problems in our society today? I think a lot of us agree on the same problems. I mean, there's some crazy but like Oregon apparently just removed the requirements to read, write and have math. Uh, from graduation like that's not somebody who has any good intentions whatsoever but generally right. American that that's just left as weirdo politicians but general Americans whether they be left or right identify the same problems we want everybody wants affordable housing right everybody wants right. safe neighborhoods everybody wants right. equal treatment before the law everybody wants these things and um what is that noise sounds like you're uh are you moving on a leather chair or <laughs> yeah <laughs> did you just hear that yes, yeah i am sitting on a yeah. leather chair i was like moved. i was like is somebody eating tacos or are you sitting on a leather chair okay okay but but no you, that is just a chair okay but to the point to, to the to finish the point funny. everybody kind of has that same it's just our solutions might be different so i right. think i think we come closer together as people when we start with data and then we go from there that's one of the big problems with the COVID thing right is that that we're mostly arguing over skewed data not real data and if we could just talk about real data and then develop solutions from there, we'd probably be a lot better off. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you start from the position that we will seek to address problems and we can agree on what the problems are, then the conversation becomes uh, much more enjoyable to have, much more civil to have. And we're going to get a lot further in terms of progress yeah. than, uh, than if you're fighting over what the problem is and, you know, you don't see the problem that I see and I don't see the problem that you see. But, um, but if you take a look at the data, it becomes much easier to 
to get to agreement on the problems. Of course, the real solution is that everybody just needs to know that I'm right all the time, every time. And uh, as long as they do that, then we would all get along. But I can't get everybody to realize that. So. Anyway. Look, it, it'd be it'd be wonderful if uh, if everybody just agreed with me. But in some <laughs> ways, it, it would be it would be a remarkably boring world. Then, yeah, right? wouldn't it? Though? Uh, we are we we are made better by conflict, and yeah. and by conflict, I mean you know civil and sure. truthful and all those kinds of things. But um, you know, tension makes muscle build, and I believe that free societies function the same way. Yeah. Um, but it it doesn't. If we can't agree on the problems, we can't agree on the underlying assumptions, we can't agree on the data. Yep. So um, we have to be able to do that. Iron sharpens iron, brother. Hey, man, appreciate you. Have a great day. It's good talking to you again. You as well. All right. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That's Josh Crawford, the uh, Pegasus Institute. Love those guys. I'm serious. Uh, plug in them because you should have them. As people have asked me before, what source do you use for information? That's one of them. Okay. I do read the conservative sites. I do read the liberal sites. I try to find uh, places where I can find uh, real journalism. I follow uh, journalists like um, Glenn Greenwald, who's a leftist, but he's a fair journalist. Uh, I definitely check out sites like hotair.com. Uh, the Daily Wire is pretty good, although it definitely is going to be bringing you a very right-wing point of view. Not that that's bad, but I'm just saying you have to be aware that a lot of that is opinion. Um, but the Pegasus Institute gets that underlying data, and then you can add the opinion pieces in on top of that and then see if that helps influence how you feel about something. But it's just super important that we get the actual data first. Very important to me. Anyway, thanks for listening. Thank you to Louisville Cabinets and Countertops, our sponsor of the program. We love them so much, and I'm telling you, I have been a customer, so I can honestly say um, that uh, I can highly recommend them. Um, I've been a customer not only once but twice. We actually had them do our kitchen, and then we had them do our master bath, and I was pleased with both jobs beyond words. So if you are looking to upgrade your kitchen, this is the call you need to make, 502-930-3304. Tim Montgomery at Louisville Cabinets and Countertops is going to take care of you. We had a really bad island situation. And it was just ugly and it was unwieldy. And uh, I brought Tim in and he said, hey, I think I can fix that for you. And he did. And then we put quartz countertops. It just changed the entire look of it. And I was able to then entertain. Gosh, I loved that kitchen. And I think it's the reason the house sold in less than a day when we finally put it on the market. Um, if you are looking to redesign and you don't want to do any work at all, they have three designers on staff, George, Michelle, and Kelly, and they all want to take your call. Or see your bright, shiny face at 6200 Hit Lane, right there on the border of Oldham County and Louisville. If you're in Oldham County, Southern Indiana, Louisville, this is your place. Now, if you're a uh, do-it-yourselfer or you have um, a, a contractor, you're a contractor and you just want to pick up some cabinets, you already know what you need, got the layout and everything, they have cabinets in stock. And not just cabinets like you'd find at like a big box store that are ugly, you know, just off the shelf. These are... These are check them out on the website. Go to the cabinets and then just go to in stock cabinets and scroll through the different styles they have. Shaker cabinets, um, modern, sleek, country. It doesn't matter what style you're looking for, they've got it. So check out Louisville Cabinets and Countertops. Thanks to Dynamics Productions for their pro, uh, help with the program uh, as well. And uh, you can download us on Instagram. Uh, or excuse me, on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. It's a free download, and once you subscribe, they'll send you free episodes to your pocket every time a new one comes out. You can find us on Instagram at, at GreatlyLondo and at The Disruption Zone, and on Twitter, it's at Leland Show and at Zone Disruption. Thanks for listening. I'm Leland Conway, The Disruption Zone. <laughs>